Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I am sitting across from Richie Keene, one of the most amazing young directors. He's doing his first major motion picture called Fist Fight, starring Ice Cube and Charlie Day, which opens February 17th. Normally, you don't get gifts from Industry Standard guests. But today, I got the most amazing original gift, challah, which is Jewish, means challah. If you've never had challah, I suggest you get out there and put a little Jewishness in your life. Well, this wasn't meant to be a commercial for challah. (laughs) I just wanted to do something nurturing for you for the weekend. It's so nurturing, so wonderful. And, you know, when you sit across from Richie, one of the things that I first saw that he ever did when I was working with Whitney Cummings, one of the first breaks she got was being in a short film that Richie directed called Hooked. It has so many great people in it, from Zach Braff to Jeff Garland and so many other amazing actresses and actors. When I first met Whitney, she was a correspondent at the Sundance Film Festival. Never really acted in anything at all, never did stand up. And Richie was giving her one of her first breaks in this movie. I watched it with her, and I was just blown away by Whitney's performance in the movie. It was so believable, and then I realized that every performance in it was really incredible, including Richie himself, who has a role in the movie. When she talked about him, she said he's an actor, he's also an acting coach, he also has directed commercials and things like that, and now he's putting this film together as a vehicle to show people what he can do. Normally, when you see somebody's first thing that they do, it's normally horrible. But this 
film is really extraordinary in every way. And I asked Richie how this got made. And of course, he did what he had to do, which was finance this through other work that he'd done in the past and other genres. And he believed in himself and bet on himself. And he wrote it with his writing partner. He directed it. He helped produce it. He edited it and rented a movie theater, the silent movie theater on Fairfax and invited all the people in the business that he knew. And also somebody like Zach Braff, who actually happened to be at his first stand-up performance. These people came through for him when he wanted to ask. Richie Keene is an example of many things in the business. Number one, huggable and lovable wins the race. When you meet Richie, you feel so good about yourself. Secondly, relationships. You create great relationships, you're a nice guy, and you treat people like a million bucks, and they're going to come and work an hour for you or a day for you for free. And the last thing is bet on yourself. Take whatever money you have that's not going to kill you and put something together that's wonderful like Hooked. If you follow that trajectory of those three things, I can't see how it's possible that you're going to be in a position to fail. But if you do fail, as Richie will tell you, you'll get back up and you follow that formula over and over again. And eventually people are going to notice and you're going to have a shot at the kind of career that Richie Keene has. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Uh, undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. Me, as always, I got to give this man sitting across from me who gave me Kala the proper introduction. Here we go. Richie Keene is a WGA award-winning writer and director whose work is diversified across the comedy landscape. Richie's one of the resident directors on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Other recent directing credits include the TV Land pilot for Teachers, Shameless for Showtime, Billy Crystal's Comedians for FX, the new Netflix comedy Disjointed from Chuck Lorre, New Girl on Fox, and The Goldbergs on ABC. Richie also directed an award-winning ESPN 30 for 30 short and makes his directorial debut with Fist Fight for New Line Cinema, starring Ice Cube and Charlie Day, which opens February 17th. Raised in Highland Park, Illinois, Keen enrolled at the University of Michigan as a psychology major, but soon realized he wanted to dedicate himself to acting and transferred to Northwestern to study theater, where he met his future writing partner, Heath Corson and Keene began doing stand-up in the summer of that year. Before his senior year, he went out to L.A. where, after his first two open mic nights, iconic comedy club owners Mitzi Shore and Jamie Masada offered Keene housing and management in Los Angeles, respectively. But Keene, betting on himself again, decided to go back and finish his senior year. After graduating, he did move to L.A. where he continued with stand-up, and emerged as one of Hollywood's top acting coaches. Keene's first major break came in 2005 when he and partner Heath Corson wrote, and Keene directed and co-starred in their self-produced comedy short, Hooked. 
which was a hit at the U.S. Comedy and Arts Festival in Aspen and landed Keene his first TV deal with Fox. Over the next several years, Keene went on to star in dozens of sitcoms and national commercials. He won a WGA award for a digital series called Aim High, which he co-created, co-wrote, and executive produced, which also won a Digital Luminary Award, and Richie also wrote pilots for CBS, Fox, and Spike. Keen had millions of views for his viral work on Funny or Die and has worked on commercial campaigns for Jeep, MasterCard, and Xbox. On TV, he's also directed the entire second season of Comedy Central's Important Things with Dimitri Martin, TBS's Angie Tribeca, and the first two episodes of the IFC's Benders. Currently, Richie is writing, directing, and starring in the pilot Thruple for NBC and is also attached to direct the feature Partners, starring Mark Wahlberg. Please welcome my guest today, Richie Keen. It's so great to be here. I have to tell you, I'm in the midst of doing all sorts of great things to promote Fistfight, and this is the thing I really was most excited to come and do and most nervous to come and do because I'm such a fan of the podcast. You're sort of like a, a recur in my life over the last 20 years where you pop up in different places and you know when someone who's um who's who's kind and um and you know you're very modest on the on the show about all the people you've shepherded through comedy but um it's no surprise to me that this has become what it's become and you've had so many of my friends and peers on the show i was so complimented that you would want to sit with me so thank you for having me it's an honor and i have so many things to ask you but the first thing i want to talk to you about is you've directed a lot of people who are stand-ups mm -hmm. you slave over a script you're writing and rewriting and then somebody comes on the set like jeff garland thank god <laughs> and jeff will be like okay i'll do it your way once and then i'm going to do it my way mm-hmm how, as a director and a writer, psychologically, do you handle the fact that your script and your project are actually being hijacked by a comedy artist who don't know any other way? Oh, that's an excellent question. And it speaks to two things. One is surround yourself with people, ideally, that are better than you. So if you start with that and you start with the idea that you are hopeful that the people around you are going to elevate what you do... There's no problem with what you just said. I mean, thank God Jeff Garland does what he does. Thank God Tracy Morgan does what he does. You know, as a director, I, I prepare the way you just talked about meticulously. I have shot lists. I have floor plans. I have storyboards if it's, you know, something complicated. And I do that so I could sleep. I do that so I can show up and know that if everyone is off their game, it's going to be a win. So I make everyone give my way a shot and then I happily let them do quote unquote their way. I actually learned this on Hooked on my first short film 10 years ago where I had such a clear idea of what I wanted something to be and one of the actors had such a clear idea of what he wanted it to be and I was angry. Dude, I, I just spent all this time. I raised all this money. You know, I'm, I'm paying for this. Do it my way and he did and then I said, all right, do it your way and I got into editing and I was like, he was right his way's better. And it was such a humbling moment and such a great lesson, which is let people do them. I mean, always get a take the way you wrote it, always get a shot the way you had it in your head. But whether it's the actor or the cinematographer or 
a producer who might come up and talk in your ear and say, hey, what about this? I'm about gathering the material. So future me sitting in the editing room has everything to play with. And I can't tell you how many times I'm so thrilled that someone like Jeff Garland or Tracy Morgan or Charlie Day or Ice Cube or Billy Crystal, whomever it is, did something on the day that wasn't exactly on the page. Thank God. So you're in the editing bay. You're watching all the versions. And at that moment, you come to the realization. It was right. Do you get on your phone and call them right then and there? Well, I, I've never gotten mad again since that first time. So there there's, needs to be no apology because everyone's ideas are welcome when I'm working. So, But I love, there's nothing that makes me happier than texting Charlie Day from the editing room and saying, oh my God, you remember the fourth take you did of that thing <laughs> where you freaked out instead of keeping it still? Oh my God, it's amazing. I just cut it in. It's amazing. Um, so I, I love to give people their praise and their credit i i'm constantly texting tracy morgan to just tell him how brilliant something i just saw in the editing editing room was and because that i take for granted i think most people take for granted they want to know that you know people who are funny uh you and i both know uh you get into being funny because it feels good to be told you're funny and to to get that kind of feedback so uh I'm constantly reaching out to people in the editing room to say, I'll take a picture, I'll take a video and send it and be like, oh my God, look at this. You're so awesome. Thank you. And I have an infamous joke on set when someone does something like that where I say, I can't wait to take, I can't, I have an infamous thing I say on set when that happens where I say, I can't wait to take credit for that. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, people joke with me that you're, you're going to get all the credit and you're going to get all the blame. So <laughs> take it, you know, enjoy it. What happens when you're in the editing bay and just couldn't get the performance out of them and you're watching and you realize, I'm going to have to cut around this, I'm going to have to cut this out. What kind of conversation do you have with the actor when that happens? That is also a great question because there's nothing worse than telling an actor, hey, before you come to the premiere, I just want you to know this scene has been cut the storyline has been cut, um, but I have never, ever cut something because of performance. I can't think of a time where an actor didn't pull through. It's usually because, in the case of the movie, a test audience found the information redundant. In the case of a TV show, it's a 21-minute show, and the first cut was 29 minutes. They just wrote too much stuff. We just got too much stuff. So... Um, in the case of Fistfight, I hand wrote letters to a number of kids. I just wanted to make sure everyone didn't go to the theater. You know, being an actor myself, I, I, I was cut out of so many things. My folks in Chicago would be watching an episode of some show that I was on, and they'd call me and they'd say, you know, I, I think it must be next week's show because you weren't on it. And here I am in L.A. waiting two hours, and all my friends are going to tune in, and I've just learned from my parents, no, it's not on next week. I was cut. Um so I always feel like if, if someone does get cut, I, I want to write them a note and I want to tell them why and make sure they know it wasn't because of their performance. It was because of time. It was because of the scene not working. Uh, it was because I didn't nail it. Um, it was because the test audience didn't like it for whatever reason. Uh, but I do make sure I tell everyone uh, before they t turn on the TV or, or go to the movie theater. Tell our audience 
the last time you came home and you sort of sat in the fetal position and you said, I wasn't my best there, and it showed. I think it's usually when I've had those moments, it's because I wasn't my best self on set. Um, I wasn't leading by being positive and, and inspiring. I was leading out of fear. I didn't think I was going to get it all. Uh, we were behind. We were leaving the location. And the moments where I come home and and look at my fiance and say, I think I'm going to... There was one moment on the movie where I came home one night and I said, I think I'm going to start crying. I think I might start crying. And it was not. it was because of just feeling like I wasn't who I wanted to be. I was exhausted. I was 33 days into a shoot where I was up at 5.30 every morning and home around 9 p.m. every night. And I wasn't my best self with someone. So those moments are usually not that I didn't get it, but the way in which I got it, the way in which we got it wasn't the way I most feel good about being a leader. So your personal life, I feel, is so closely tied to your professional life. So when Richie says that he's getting up at 5.30 every morning, it's not just those 33 days. When he takes a job for film, he's dedicating at least probably one year of his life to it. At least. I mean, this was a year and a half. How do you keep a relationship going at 5.30 in the morning, coming back late at night, you're exhausted? In her mind, you're number one on her call sheet. How do you let her know that throughout it all, she's number one on your call sheet? It's such a great question. I don't think people talk about this enough. Um, meeting Brianna was a game changer for me because she's such a... Brianna teaches me how to be a better person and we hate being away from each other and so we make choices together. Um, there, there have been other movies already that have come to me and we talk about it and say, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Is it worth it for us? Is this one worth doing? You know, I have had a long road to this. I never thought I'd get to make a studio movie. And Brianna being with me in Atlanta shooting this movie is the reason I was able to be successful. It was the opposite of having to navigate a relationship. It was pure support and pure love. And it strengthened and emboldened me to be able to be the best director I could be. And so aside from asking her to marry me and let her know she's the most important person in my life, we really try, you know, she's a very successful actress in her own right and is constantly working and on series. And when it comes to us going out of town, those are decisions we make together. And I think in doing that together, we make sure that our relationship is prioritized. You know what your lane is. This movie, to me, what surprised me more than anything else was that I felt that it was a whole different tone than the kind of comedy that I'm used to you being around. When you get offered a movie that isn't exactly your lane of comedy that you normally do you think okay this isn't the kind of movie that i thought i'd be making first but i have to make this something really really special that shows people that i can do this genre just as well as i've been doing the other genre i think movies that have come to me more recently 
are more what you're talking about, where I read something and I think, I can service this, but I don't think I can make this special or uniquely me. In the case of Fist Fight, it actually was exactly what I wanted to do, and I'll tell you why. I grew up in John Hughes country. Highland Park, Illinois, Evanston, Illinois. When I was growing up, Ferris Bueller, 16 Candles, Breakfast Club, Weird Science, then Risky Business and Ordinary People. There were all these movies being filmed in and around my hometown, and most of them were John Hughes movies. And when I read Fist Fight, I was like, this is a rated R John Hughes movie. It had the tropes of a John Hughes movie. It all takes place in a day. It takes place in a high school. It's the day that changed someone's life. Ferris Bueller, Breakfast Club, 16 Candles, Weird Science. I mean, you can go on and on and on. So, but this had all the weird stuff I'm into as well. And I read it and I'll never forget my pitch because no, no one would meet with me on this movie. You're basically saying, um, hey, I know you have a mystery to solve, and you've got detectives who have solved hundreds of mysteries. I've never solved a mystery, but I, I have a great idea on how to solve this one mystery. I mean, you're really trying to convince someone to let you do something that they have no uh, motivation to let you do. Um, with Fist Fight, when I read it, I had such a clear idea of what I wanted it to be that I... I did want to go make this as my first movie. I had a couple other movies, and again, I was on no one's list. I was just being sent scripts to read by my agents. And I'll never forget, a movie came my way, it was very real, it was going to get made, and my agent said, you should do this. You should really consider doing this. And I said, I I can't make this movie. And he said, why? And I said, when you talk to a studio and you pitch me as a director, what's the first thing they say? And he said, they ask, has he done a movie? And I said, what do you say? He said, I say, no, but he's done all the coolest TV. He's got this cool pilot. He works for FX and Showtime and IFC. He's got the greatest. And I said, great, great. Now, if I make this movie and you call the studio and say, uh, you, you got to look at Richie Keen. And they say, has he, has he done a movie? And you say, yes. What's their second question? Can I see it? I would rather them not see this. I would rather be the guy who's never done anything until it's the perfect thing that I know I can nail. I think a lot of TV directors who get a chance to make a movie make the mistake of not doing what they do. Uh, This movie is about six or seven people in a school. Um, I just had done a pilot about six or seven people in a school. Um, It's a character piece. And at the end of the day, when I read it, I was like, this is a prison riot movie. Um, This is a prison riot movie with undertones of high noon, and I'm going to light it and lens it, and everything about it is going to come from that place. My my cinematographer did Copland. He did To Die For. I didn't hire the guy who did, you know, any number of rated R comedies, all of which I love. But I said, this high school movie has to feel different. Um, You know, so... In the process of trying to get the movie, I, I continued to firm up my vision of the movie, and uh, and that that's sort of how I started going into rooms. So take our audience through how you go in and get the gig away from these seasoned veterans. Well, if you started the, if I started at the beginning, no one would meet with me. So it started with I'd like to get, pursue this movie, and my agent saying they will not, no one will meet with you. So I kind of just keep bothering people 
until my agent decides, let me get Richie a general meeting with an executive at the studio so they could at least just know him. And who knows, maybe down the line, this movie comes together for Richie some way, somehow, maybe it doesn't. But uh, it won't be under the guise of, hey, he wants to talk about fist fight. Just have a general meeting. I go into that meeting and the executive shuts the door and I said, we're just talking about fist fight. We're talking about fist fight. That's what we're talking about. And I give my whole pitch on what I think the movie should be, what I think would amp the script up, who I think should be cast, how it should be shot. And at the end of that meeting, the executive said, I got to tell you something. We've had a lot of meetings on this movie. That's the best take I've heard. But I don't know what to do because you've never made a movie and you're a TV director and I don't know how to sell you to my boss. And I said, if there is a 1% chance that I could get this movie, let me know and I will come back with visual evidence of why you guys should hire me. And some time passed and they probably went to some big names. I don't know. And I got a call like, all right, they want to see your presentation. So I took about seven or $8,000 and I put together a trailer uh, with Ice Cube and Charlie Day from footage they had done in other movies. And I made it look like they were in scenes together. I did uh, storyboards. I was, I, I was like Willie Loman with a bag of wares going from office to office. Suddenly there was this weird sort of groundswell where this one guy at New Line and this one guy at, who's producing the movie and this, they're all starting to talk and say, you know, I kind of like this. I kind of, this guy's got a real take and he won't leave me alone about it. And I actually one day just emailed everyone and just said, I'm prepping the movie. So just tell me if I need to stop. And I, I, I don't know what they thought, but I got a call, you know, a week later and said, all right, they're down to a few people. They want you to meet with the head of the studio. Come on in. And is it like an actor auditioning or testing for a role where you go in, you do your scene for the casting director, they say, come back, do it for the producers. Yes. You do it for the producers and they say, okay, you're going to test for the studio. Are you doing the exact same thing? The great thing was with each meeting, I came up with more and more stuff based on questions they had. So by the time, every with every new meeting, there was more stuff. There was more of a take. There was... There was lighting, there was, there was, hey, I found a fight choreographer. I think I found a school in Atlanta that would be perfect. And they're going, this is crazy. We're just, we just want to hear your take, but this guy is putting the movie together. And um, the, the, to your analogy, when you go to the, have this final meeting with, with Toby Emmerich, who runs the studio, and, and Richard Brenner, and, and, all, and all these wonderful executives who, who've been amazing to work with, it's like a network test. That all the directors come on the same day after each other. So I happen to be the last guy. I'm listening through the wall and hearing other directors, and I'm hearing them laughing, and I'm going, oh, my God, I'm going, oh, my God, they're, they're killing it in there, you know? And I go in at the end, and I decide I'm not going to be funny. I'm, I'm going to talk about this movie like a drama. I need to talk about the characters. I mean, this is a movie about two guys fighting. The only way this movie is going to work is if each character has a specific point of view, and if the school is going through something, and at the end of the day, there's this cathartic release that happens with this fight and I went in and did that and uh waited like you do when you're an actor and a couple days later I got a call all right it's looking good uh Ice Cube wants to meet you and I say oh great great where do I need to go and they said Atlanta so go to the airport there's gonna be a ticket waiting for you get on the plane someone's gonna pick you up you're going to go to a hotel and you're going to sit in that room until you get a call that Ice Cube's there. 
So I get on this plane <laughs> and I fly to Atlanta and I'm sitting in my hotel room pounding coffee, getting jittery, waiting for Ice Cube to show up. I get a call, come on down, Ice Cube's here. I go to the lobby and I give my whole presentation to Ice Cube in the lobby of a hotel. And I'm in the middle of a, of a passionate pitch and someone's like, can I get a picture? And he's like, of course, you know, because he's, he's the nicest guy in the world. And I'm thinking like, I'm, I'm like, I'm dying. I'm floundering. Like he's taking pictures and signing autographs and, you know, he must not be into this. And, you know, I show him the trailer. I put the head, you know, he puts the headphones on and I'm showing him, I'm telling him what I want to do with his character. Cause the character wasn't written for ice cube. And I, at the end of that meeting, I just looked at him. I'm you know, it's been months. I've been pursuing this job. And I just said, I said, cube. Because you told me to call him Cube, which is a very cool moment for me. When you say, "What do I, what do I call you, Ice Cube?" He said, you call me Cube. I'm, All right. So, uh, so I finish my presentation and I just say, "Cube, we doing this? We doing the movie?" And he says, "You know, you flew out here. I liked your presentation." Yeah, let's go make a movie, motherfucker. <laughs> and in that moment, I took a picture, and then I sent it to everyone involved with the movie, and I said, he said, yes, you can't say no, we're making a movie together. <laughs> that began uh, an amazing year-and-a-half-long relationship with Mr. Cube. When I watched the movie, one of the things that surprised me, people don't understand how valuable the straight man role is in comedy. In Cube movies, he's always the straight man, Cube made the decision to leave his lane and take a role that is really funny. And this seemed unusual that he would do this. Was the script originally written where he was 50% of the funny? It was a decision we made together in, 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 in rewriting the movie for him. Um, he was very clear he wanted to do something different than he had ever done. And it was very important to me that he... Um, be scary in a way that it was real. And, you know, he, especially coming off of 21 and 22 Jump Street where he's yelling a lot, you know, my, my favorite moment is, um, you know, we, we were doing the scene where he challenges Charlie to the fight and he had a line that is, I can't, I can't wait to fuck you up. And he was, you know, he was, he was crushing it. And I just walked over to him and I just said, just, just whisper it, just whisper it. And he did, and everyone laughed. It was just like, it's because it's Ice Cube, he, he can do a lot of things effortlessly because of who he is. Um, I didn't just want him to be the shark in Jaws that was swimming around Charlie. I wanted to make sure he could have half the comedy. And I got to give him credit because I, I'm a first-time feature director, and he he did everything I could have asked for and more. I, I just kept thinking like, what is different? How can I make this different? How can I make him do something he's normally not, not doing? And, you know, there's two kinds of comedy actors. There's like the people who absorb and there's the people who like react. You know, I remember reading that Jim Carrey was once attached to do meet the parents. Um, he puts energy out, you know, Ben Stiller's a reactor. And so that's what made that movie, I think, so great. And Jim Carrey, uh, I read an interview where he spoke about this. He's like, it was better with Ben because Ben is a better reactor than I am. So it was always finding the balance. And same thing with Charlie. I didn't want Charlie to just be the guy in Horrible Bosses where he's always kind of screaming in a high-pitched voice. And I wanted to just continue to find the balance. 
we worked very, very hard on each of their characters' point of view. Um, Charlie being the teacher who wants to teach by um, being your buddy. You know, if he sees you on your phone, he's probably going to take a selfie with you. So you'll post it and he'll be the cool teacher. Q being a, a, a teacher who really cares and is an old school teacher. He sees you on your phone. He's going to take and he's probably going to break it. Um, and if if you follow the lighting in the movie, you can always see whose side I'm on. The lighting at the beginning of the movie in Charlie's room. It's a white room. The sun's pouring in. He's got a white dry erase board behind him. Ice Cube, the first time he's in his room, it's a dark blue room with a green uh, chalkboard behind him. The, the, the shades are drawn. And as Charlie goes through the movie and he's being sketchier and sketchier, his light gets dimmer and dimmer. I mean, every time we're in his room, it gets grosser and grosser. And Cube is actually making a lot of sense about this fight as the movie goes on. You realize this isn't just like an angry black guy wanting to beat up a white guy, which is what it was really important to me that we stayed away from. So his light gets brighter and brighter. And like halfway through the movie, I have like a summit in the Model UN room where Charlie's sitting at Israel and Ice Cube's sitting in Iran. And it's like purgatory. It's like black with dollops of light. And so it's kind of fun. And no one will ever study this in a film class, but it's kind of fun if you follow those things. You can sort of see who's who we're rooting for. And my, my hope is that by the time we get to the fight you kind of want to see them both win or you want to see them both. You don't, it's not a slam dunk. So you're, you're, you're talking about um, developing Ice Cube's character. And so the first week of filming, we were doing the scene in the Model UN room. And it took a day and a half to shoot one scene. Now, many movie stars would come to the director and be like, what the fuck are we still doing here? Ice Cube didn't. He could have. Because I could see a lot of people looking around like, why are we still here? Why is he doing all these different shots? It's a couple people sitting, talking. and But I had a real, real specific plan of what every line was going to be because they're just sitting. And it's a very intense scene where you're hearing both of their philosophies on why this fight has to happen. And I called my editor and I said, edit the scene. Stop everything you're doing. Take all this footage. Do this line on this shot, this line on this shot, this line on this shot. He put the scene together and I don't know, four or five days later we're on set and I grabbed Ice Cube or let me rephrase that. I gently beckoned him over to me. (laughs) You don't grab Ice Cube. And I pulled up my phone and I gave him a pair of headphones. I said, watch this. And I watched him watch the scene and he, he just slowly had this smile on his face and he put it down and he took the headphones off and he said, keep doing what you're doing. I'll do what you need. And there's a there's a trust you do have to build and as as soon as that had happened and he could see what he was doing and it was different than most of the comedies he's done i think he felt like this is going to be special hey everybody let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success it's a project i've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, 
you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Very excited to have a new sponsor called AquaTrue, which is the first ever countertop water purifying system that uses a multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. It sounds kind of complicated, but if you're like me, you read all the articles in the most reputable magazines that say that all the tap water in all 50 states has cancer-causing elements, a hundred different chemicals found in this water that are not even regulated by the EPA. And then you go out and you buy a pitcher filter and it makes you feel better because your water tastes a little bit better. But then you read it's not safer. So now you can create the same water with the same safety and taste of your favorite bottled water brands for pennies with the same technology used by all the major water companies. Again, it's called AquaTrue and they've created a website for our listeners called industrystandardwater.com. You go to that, it'll take you to the AquaTrue site and if you punch in 100 in the special code area of that website, you'll save $100 off the price, which is unprecedented. I have one of these. It's amazing, and it's guaranteed to make you the safest, best-tasting water ever. Take me back to where you grew up, what the economics were of your family, and what was your first inspiration to be in this business? Uh, I grew up in a great uh, artistic forward town. Like the high school I went to had an arts program and they would bring in uh, alumni and local artists to the school every couple of years and you'd go see all these artists speak. And I think that gave a lot of people I went to school with um, the belief that, oh, you can make a living doing this. I mean, there were people, people would come in, the Steppenwolf Theater Company came out of my, my, uh, my high school. Um, uh, uh, Adam Goodman, who ran Paramount, came out of my high school. Uh, Dan Weiss, who created Game of Thrones, came out of my high school. I mean, it was a really art-forward high school. Uh, I was obsessed with stand-up comedy. I was the guy who would VHS tape comedy specials and bring my friends over to watch them. I'm sure they're like, dude, can we go do something? I'm like, no, we got to watch this Rodney Dangerfield Young Comedian special. We got to watch the HBO Young Comedian special. There was a game changer one for me, which was Dennis Miller hosting, David Spade, Rob Schneider. Those were the things that I, I, I just loved watching. I just always wanted to perform and write and, you know, even took over sort of the cable access show at my high school. And... I was so lucky because I had parents who were fans. Um, you know, when I graduated Northwestern and could have done anything, and I said, I'm going to L.A., I'm going to be a stand-up comic, my parents, their attitude was basically, yeah, you should. You're funny. You should go do that. You'll be great at it. Uh, my junior year of college, I got an internship at the time. It was Conan O'Brien's first summer on the air in New York, uh, his NBC show, Louis C.K., Robert Smigel, um, um, you know, Andy Richter, all these people. And I was their intern. 
uh, it was it, it was a, just a life changing thing to go to New York where I'd never been uh, and live there and go to Thirty Rock every day and get them coffee. You have to get the internship. Right. Did you get the internship the same way you got the movie? Yeah. Yeah. I actually, I, it's like embarrassing to think about. I put on a suit. I got up, I had a, I was in a play at school and I got up one morning at, you know, three in the morning and put on a suit and I flew to New York and I went to 30 Rock. I had sent them my resume. I basically showed up and was like, I'm here to interview to be an intern. I'm in a suit. I mean, people are walking around in hoodies. I, I was like, I looked ridiculous. And... Uh, convinced them to give me a chance. I got on a pl- I went up, did the interview, uh, got back on a plane, flew back, did, a, did my play that night. Sound familiar, Richie? Get on a plane, fly out, no. do your pitch, fly back. Yeah. Here, here's what I'll say. I knew early on there were people who were way more talented than me, so I just made a decision very early that I had to outwork everyone. I had to out-hustle everyone. It there's talent we are in people can say what they want about LA there's so much talent here there are brilliantly talented people around me all the time the only shot I had was just to outwork everyone and and or at least try to leave it all on the field which is something I talk about a lot I I can handle losing if everyone has left everything on the field Um, I really can I can't handle losing when we haven't done that, when I haven't done that, when everyone around me hasn't done that. Um, so I guess I left it on the field. I got the internship. Um, Zach Braff and I, who were uh, fraternity brothers, uh, went out together. We got a dorm room at NYU. Zach was acting in an after school special while I was, uh, you mentioned in the intro that he was at my first stand up performance. And so I at Conan was realizing maybe I should write comedy. Maybe I shouldn't perform it. Maybe like they, these guys are having a blast and I was encouraged to go to an open mic. So I figured I'm in a city. I'll never see anyone again. Uh, I'm going to go find an open mic. And I went down to the New York comedy club and did an open mic. Uh, I was all style, no substance. I mean, I had the worst material ever, and someone, I think someone who ran the club said, you, sh- you can come do the show Friday night. And so I went and did this show in front of a full audience. I think you said this to Titus. Maybe he said this, that like God gives you the first one. God gave me the first one. I got up on stage. It was a full crowd and I crushed. So the next week I said, I got to invite all my friends in New York. I'm, <laughs> I'm so good at this. And Zach and a couple other people came down and I, I didn't crush. I was like, wait, what happened? It's the same <laughs> stuff. Um, and that began sort of a love affair with, with, with stand-up. And then, yes, went back to Northwestern, would, get on, would study theater during the day and do Shakespeare and all this stuff. And I'd get on a train and go downtown by myself and do the improv. And uh, eventually the next summer, I came out to L.A. to do an internship, uh, to do two internships. I worked for the head of casting at New Line, and I worked for a producer named Wendy Feinerman, who produced... Forrest Gump and the Devil Wears Prada and and then at night went and did open mics and that's when you said and I don't know how you found this in your research but yes Jamie Masada kindly offered to, to manage me and Mitzi Shore happened to come in early for a showcase night when I was doing an open mic and said I will give you you can stay in my condo if you transfer to UCLA or quit school and um 
I was, I couldn't believe it. I mean, I think I had three minutes or four minutes of material, Barry. I mean, I, I, I but I hear these two owners of these clubs saying I should do this. I didn't know anyone in the business. I knew one guy at MTV who had been nice to me and I just called him and I just said, I, I don't know what to do. And he said, uh, it'll be here next year, you know, go back to school. Um, and I did, and I came back out and they didn't remember me. Uh, I got back on stage into the open mics and Mitzi gave me a job selling tickets at the door. And Jamie remembered me once he saw my set and said, I'm going to manage you. And he did. And they were both so kind to me. And in that time, I got to be around you and people you worked with and other people. And I came to realize, uh, I'm good at this, but you know, I would see Chappelle go up and, and, and this is right before Chappelle show. And I, I was just like, this guy is in a different league. I'll never be this. Uh, I can do stand up. I enjoy doing it. You know, people can say what they want about Dane Cook. That guy, he was unknown when I was hosting at the Laugh Factory on Friday and Saturday nights. I would be hosting a show where very, very famous comedians would be getting up and bombing because the crowd was rowdy or unforgiving. Dane Cook would walk in that room, an unknown Dane Cook would get on that stage and crush in a way I had never seen before. Uh, Jay Moore would get up and crush in a way I'd never seen before. Um, I just started to feel like I love stand-up, but in my heart, I'm not going to be the best no matter how hard I work. And the truth of the matter was I didn't want to work as hard as I ultimately did as an actor and acting teacher and a director. And that said a lot to me. So I just slowly started. I think it was when I got my first pilot uh, that I decided uh, to slowly move away from stand up and let it be something that I do when I can and not something that is like the thing I do. You know, you'd watch different people go on stage and how they handled hecklers um, that told you so much about them and the way that they would approach anything. And it taught me, one of the things I always said when I was teaching acting was everyone had to go away that week and either watch a movie or a TV show and come back and tell me if they loved it or hated it. And then more importantly, they had to say why. Because I wanted people to develop taste. You know, I wanted people to have a point of view. That was something that always came up in stand-up, your point of view. And being a comic and watching these brilliant comedians gave me an opportunity to develop my taste, my point of view. A perfect example is watching Jay Moore work a crowd or heckle people who are heckling him versus Harlan Williams being heckled. You know, Jay brilliantly was able to take anyone down who messed with him. You mess with Jay. If you came with a date, you're probably not going home with that date. <laughs> Jay was just brilliant. Harland would make friends with you. Well, friend, you seem upset. What seems to be the problem? <laughs> and he would make friends with these people who were yelling at him. And then he would go on with his act and come back to them. And, you know... It just taught me so much about how I wanted to be as a comic and then ultimately how I wanted to deal with the hecklers in my life, how I wanted to respond to people coming at me. Um, and there's value in both. Uh, I, I was more like Harland because I want to be liked and I want, I want to form bonds with people naturally. 
Um, but there is a there is a place for the Jay Moore way of handling a heckler, and that comes into play too. And when I was a comic and Jamie Masada would say, buddy, what's your point of view? And I'd say, I don't have one yet, man. I'm working on it. I'm, 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 I'm soaking it in. That was the same thing that happened for me as a director. You know, I, I got, you know, I'd made Hooked and got a TV deal and I thought, here we go. You know, I'm here. We, here we go. I got a TV deal. You know, I'm at Fox and the deal came and went. And I came and did a project for your company. Yeah, when I was at New Wave, you did the Dan Levy project, yeah. Below the Law. That got seen, and that led to me getting another deal at Fox. I didn't have an agent. You know, people, people, uh, up-and-coming directors come shadow me on shows all the time, and one of the first questions they ask is, how did you get an agent? And and I've, I've heard you say this, you know, you, you don't need to invite people. They'll find you. They will find you and chase you down like your ass is on fire. I had two deals at a network <laughs> and no agent. I wasn't worried about getting an agent. It wasn't until I think I shot the pilot, my, my second deal, that I think some people at Fox started calling some agents or just talking to them and saying, why aren't you signing this guy? And eventually that led to me getting my agents. Were you leery when they started meeting? It was like, oh, now you're here. No, no, I got it. Do you have a manager at the time? I still, I have the same manager I've had since 1998. Uh, I had done a series of commercials for ESPN where I <laughs> this is going to date me. I played a character called Netboy who was teaching the audience how to use this new website on ESPN with this new thing called Fantasy Sports. So I did a series of commercials with all these famous athletes. I think I got, not exaggerating, I think I got $350 a spot because it was a promo. And um, Larry Bresner and Buddy Mora who, and again, in a full circle moment, um, managed Billy Crystal and Robin Williams. Um, they and a younger manager at the time, Scott Fedro, um, called and said, we just saw these promos. They hadn't aired yet, but they represented the director. We think you're special. Do you need a manager? And I mean, I couldn't believe that these guys were interested in me. Uh, and I've been with Scott ever since 1998. He's a great man. Yeah, he's a good friend, and um, and I can count on him. And I'm we talk. You talk about relationships. There's nothing more important to me than my relationships. And I think when people come to LA, it's so big. There's so much going on, and you think you need to have a hundred relationships. You really need like one fan. In my career, it's always been one person that's changed it you know my friend Topher Grace who I think is one of the most underrated actors in his peer group um, go see truth and just watch him slay it liked me and liked my work he introduced me to Dimitri Martin Dimitri Martin watched a couple of my short films he said you want to come direct some sketches on my show I said sure I couldn't believe it I was going to get to direct something that was going to be on Comedy Central I happened to be the director the first week of his show he said after the first one, you want to come back for a couple more weeks? It was sort of like in Princess Bride, the <laughs> Dread Pirate Roberts, like, I'll probably kill you tomorrow, but, you know, stay another, whatever. Uh, and next thing I knew, I just directed the whole thing. And I got to develop my point of view. I got to direct 50 or 60 short films with different lighting, different lensing, different genres. And, and that led to me directing a couple things for Funny or Die, our friend Mike Farah had just started running Funny or Die, and Topher said, 
we should go do something at Funny or Die. Those guys are doing really cool, cool stuff. And I had already had a few things on Funny or Die that I had put up myself. So we went and made this ridiculous, it's still one of my favorite things. We made a short film. It was, it was Topher and Kate Bosworth and Brett Gelman. And it's still one of my favorite things I've directed. Mike Ferris still says it's one of his favorite things on the site. And weirdly enough, Topher sent that to Glenn Howerton, who was starring on that 80s show. So Topher had taken Glenn Howerton under his wing because he was the star of that 70s show. And here's this kid on that 80s show who uh, now is doing a show called It's Sunny in Philadelphia. It's always sunny in Philadelphia. And Glenn and I get together and Glenn starts watching Dimitri Martin's show. And at a time where no one else was interested in hiring me, for some reason, those guys said, we think you're special come direct our show and it, it was a game changer for me and that relationship obviously now making my first movie with charlie it's not that i had a hundred relationships you know the first half hour network show i ever directed was a show called traffic light it came and went on fox one of the creators a guy named bob fisher who wrote wedding crashers and were the millers it, the show came and went but guess what bob went on to create a show with dennis leary and I directed several episodes of that. That began a relationship with Dennis Leary. Then I'm, you know, that leads to me working on Marin. You know, the relationships thing is real. And it's not something you can just go out and make relationships. You just have to work hard and hope that someone eventually believes in you. One person, Scott, my manager, Topher, my friend, Dimitri Martin, Glenn Howerton, Charlie Day, uh, Dennis Leary. And let that relationship lead to another one. Um, I've had a career, same thing in acting. I had two casting directors that were fans of mine. You know, I think I've, I think I did four pilots because of those two casting directors. There are probably 50 casting directors who I never knew. Um, I think the sense that there's so much going on, if you can just work hard and make a fan, that will lead to good things. So you have these relationships that you've developed throughout time from when you started as a disciple of Leslie Kahn in the acting world. If you are an actor out there listening, find her and don't accept any imitation. She's amazing. She taught me how to look at the end of the day, I would get comedians and rappers and wrestlers and pop stars that come in to coach with me. And I kept thinking, why aren't I guess I should just direct. Why aren't I? I didn't know anything about cameras at the time, but I thought I'm. I'm pretty much directing them for their first film or their first pilot. And that Leslie really gave me the wings to, to, to have the confidence to take that chance. So you get your first film and now there's other roles that are there. You have a relationship with Zach. You have a relationship with Topher. You have a relationship with Leary. Are you in a situation when you give the principal role to somebody else and Leary sees the movie and he calls you up and he says, what the fuck's the matter with you? Why don't you ask me to do that role? I think Dennis Leary's doing just fine. <laughs> Does it create tension in your life with people when you see them afterwards? Well, it's the first time. It, it never occurred to me that people that I look up to and admire would think that way and that did come up a few times um but not in a bad way it was funny i had a the very roughest cut i had of the movie i got a bunch of friends together to watch it 
and we finished the screening and uh, I think it was Tover who raised his hands. I do have one question. I'm just seeing a lot of talented actors in this room and they're not in the movie. Can you can you talk about that a little bit, please? But he was he was just giving me he was there was no role for him. I mean there was no role for for, for any of those people. In hindsight, yes, a few people kindly wanted to know Hey, I wish I like I wish I could have been in your movie, and that was I. It never even occurred to me. I've never been in a position like that where stars are would like to be in my movie. So obviously, I I just hadn't considered that. The reason it wasn't much of an issue is this: we rewrote every role for the funniest person I could find in that role. So just to give you a sense, so um, Tracy Morgan's role was written for like an older white guy. And Tracy had been in this accident and no one had seen him. No one, he hadn't been on TV yet. He hadn't been on SNL yet. He hadn't done the Emmys yet. So I wanted Tracy in this role, but the studio was concerned, you know, Hey, can can this guy walk? Does he have brain damage? Um, I had to meet with every funny African American person, uh, and really give it a thorough look before I could come back around on Tracy because there was concern, is he healthy enough? You know, I Skyped with Tracy. I was supposed to direct and produce Tracy's FX show before his accident. I Skyped with Tracy. He hadn't been on TV yet. And 30 seconds in, he's like, who's Captain Kirk's best friend? I, I said, Spock. He said, no, because Spock calls him Captain. You don't call your best friend Captain. Bones is his best friend because he could say, damn it, Jim. And I thought, he's fine. He's ready to go back to work. The dude's fine. If he can't, if he needs to sit in a chair for some scenes, I'll be fine, you know. Um, Likewise with Jillian Bell, the character was for a guy. And I just kept thinking of Jillian. When you see the movie, the role is so potentially unlikable. Uh, I mean, this is a teacher who's like trying to hook up with a student and doing drugs. And, you know, if you had cast the wrong dude it just I, it just seemed gross somehow Jillian you're kind of rooting for her yeah go do some drugs go hook, go hook up with that guy um I, Jillian it's an interesting story um read it when we rewrote it for her wanted to do it the studio couldn't come to terms with her they told me I had to move on I found out Jillian was having a meeting at New Line with the executives a general meeting um I showed up unannounced I went into the conference room. I opened the door. Everyone looks up like, what is this guy doing here? There's Jillian Bell. I got on my hands and my knees. I said, Jillian, my name's Richie Keen. I'm begging you to do my movie, Fist Fight. And I sat there and begged her. And I and then everyone was just looking at me with like their jaws open. I, I, this could have gone either way. They now look at it and they talk about like, this was the greatest thing ever. But I, at the time, I was like, look, this could get me kicked off the movie. I'm interrupting you know, the heads of the studio here. And uh, I waited for Jillian to finish her meeting. I walked her to her car, and we worked it out. Uh, Kumail, who's a friend, is someone I just kept saying, and Charlie and I kept talking, like, there's got to be a place for Kumail in this movie. And Charlie called me one day, and he said, I got it. I know what he should do. And we wrote, Charlie sat there in my living room and wrote, like, three or four scenes in, like, 90 minutes. Kumail was in, like, Bulgaria doing a movie. I sent him the scenes. He brought me back. He's like, look, I got my show. I'm doing Silicon Valley. Can you shoot me out in this amount of days? We did it. It was for me about building a, the best band I could for the music we had written. And again, trying to surround myself with the best people who, who could elevate the comedy. Um, because of that, there weren't a lot of people who wanted to know why I didn't put him in the movie. Um, the roles were so clearly tailored for this 
diverse group of people. And then the next step for me was finding the very unobvious choices. Dean Norris from Breaking Bad to play the principal. Christina Hendricks from Mad Men to play the French teacher. I didn't want it to feel, and I don't have a pro, I, I love a lot of the movies that do this. I just didn't want it to feel like I just gathered the hipster comics of the moment. I wanted to have a balance between the funniest people and the people you would least expect in a comedy. And I think like Dean Norris and they're, they're both just so funny in the movie because they're dramatic actors. You take Alexis, for instance, right. the young girl. She goes to the sad turn. She goes to the happy turn. She has four different ways that she plays it. Let me, let me tell you about this quote unquote little girl. There's a scene backstage where Charlie comes and finds her and she's kind of crying. And I had a um, like a menthol stick that the makeup artist was going to maybe blow in her eyes. And Charlie came over to me. He's like, God, I just I feel like maybe she needs to cry. And I'm like, she's, she hasn't done much. I don't know if she can cry. She's, she's a kid. She can't cry on cue. She says, excuse me, do you want me to cry? And we looked over, Charlie and I, and I said, yeah, yeah, do, can you cry? And she she holds up her finger and says, just give me a minute. Why don't you roll it? Roll it. <laughs> this is a little girl. Uh, okay, roll sound. Sound speeding. <laughs> She's got her finger held up like a one. Just give me a minute, give me a minute. She puts her hand down. She looks up and she's crying. She goes, not gives me a nod to say action. <laughs> that girl is like going to be a huge star. I mean, she's just special. I've known Tracy my whole life. It's almost like the comedy comes from the fact that you're watching a guy who isn't as rehearsed. It never feels like he's in the scene the way you intended him to be. Yet you always seem to get there. Is that more difficult to direct? It's so joyful for me. Um, so Tracy and I had a... So Tracy and I were about to shoot our first scene. We're on a football field, and I look over, and I can just see Tracy's got a look on his face where he doesn't look, re like, ready. Something is going on in his face. And I walk over to him, and I realize I'm about to say action, and this is the first time he's acted since he got hit by a truck. He didn't know if he was going to get up ever again. He didn't know if he was going to ever be funny again. And I'm about to say action, and I'm realizing this is a big moment for him. And I walked over to him, and I put my arm, my hand on his shoulder, and I just said, uh, this is a big moment for me too. I can't believe I get to be a part of this. I can't believe I'm directing the first movie that you're going to be in since your accident, and I want you to know something. I got you. I got you. Don't you worry about a thing. And he smiled at me and he put his, his hand on me. He's like, thanks, Rich. And we talk about that moment a lot because we had a, we did have a focus on that set, Tracy and I. And we kind of had a, a little code about when it was time for him to go and do anything he wanted and when I needed him to be more on point with what was happening in the scene. My rule with Tracy was I never didn't have a camera on Tracy when he was on set. And I didn't cross shoot everything, but there were scenes where I just said to the cinematographer, and again, he's a, he was a drama guy. We have to have a camera on Tracy. I'm sorry. The lighting won't be as perfect here because as you see in the outtakes, he would say 10 things that made no sense. I mean, he would say things that were funny for no reason, but they clearly couldn't work. But the 10th thing he said was the funniest thing I had ever heard. And 
I let him do that and thank God he would do that so that 50% of the time he would do what we wrote and 50% of the time he would do something better than what we wrote. Um, I, I just love him. He's a, he's a, he's a gentle, kind, thoughtful person. And this was a big deal for him because he wanted to be great and he was worried that maybe he, I don't know, maybe he, maybe the accident knocked something out of him. And I actually think it knocked something into him. Share maybe a moment where you look at it and you're like, if I'd have done that a different way, I think that scene might have come out better than I wanted it to or that turn. Well, I knew this wasn't going to be uh, the greatest story ever told, but I did think it could be one of the funniest, and I thought I need to do the best version of this story. Uh, I know it's a silly movie about two people fighting, so uh, first of all, if it wasn't funny and if it didn't push story, I cut it in editing. I mean, I think my, I had a playwriting teacher in college who said discipline writing isn't writing every day. It's cutting your favorite scene because it doesn't move the story forward. I think we deliver on the title, the promise of the title. Um, the last 20 minutes of the movie are exactly what I could have ever hoped it would be, starting with Charlie and his daughter and taking us to the end. There's literally at these screenings, there's a, a scene at which I can lean back and just say, I can't wait to just watch the audience. And that is 100% due to preparation and knowing exactly what I wanted and knowing how I wanted this story to sort of come together. And then just the amazing execution that Charlie and Ice Cube gave to the last act of the movie. I wish I had had a little more time to open the movie the same way with the same excitement the the movie i really love the opening of the movie but i do think i left a few jokes on the floor that i couldn't figure out there's there's even a couple places in the movie where i'm like ah, i just never was able to beat that joke it's like a, a laugh moment that gets a laugh but it could have gotten an applause break um so there are just certain things in the writing that I felt like I never quite nailed, and that's just on me. But I will say this. I learned a very valuable lesson. It is always better to have a stronger third act than the other way around, ending the movie strong. It's like anything you didn't nail is forgiven. I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK. It's centered on a man who has been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy. He started as a runner for the mob in Chicago, and he was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas, and he ended up being the guy on the grassy knoll who took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. Go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary, and everybody who does go and get a copy of this special, I'm going to choose one person randomly, and I will invite them to a live podcast to be there in person with my guest 
be able to meet them, ask any questions they want. And if they're not from this area, I will Skype them in and it'll be something you'll be privy to before anybody else gets to hear the podcast. So go to ikilljfk.com, pick up this documentary. I guarantee you it will blow you away. Six degrees of separation. Let's do it. I'm going to mention some names. You say what comes to mind. Could be a word, a sentence, a story. Greg Daniels. Probably the smartest writer in comedy. Uh, I developed a show that my friend Tom Gormican and I wrote for, for Greg and his company. And he would read the script and he'd just give you two notes. And they were the most game-changing notes you could ask for. Um, yeah, I was grateful for that collaboration. Bye Bye Birdie. First play I ever did. Uh, I was on a vacation with my parents. They had planned on us flying back on a Monday. The auditions for fifth grade Bye Bye Birdie were on Monday. Hmm, flying across the country. That sounds familiar. We got to do this every week, man. There's a lot of awakenings I'm having in this conversation. My parents send me on a plane early. Their best friend, Judy Shapiro, picks me up, takes me to school, and I get to be in this play. And that was sort of a the first the first uh, acting experience I had, and it led to everything else. Danny DeVito. Danny is my spirit animal. Uh, maybe three or four years ago, Danny comes up to me on set, and we have a nice rapport, but we don't really talk personal at all. We don't get into it. And he says, hey, Rich... Um, I have a personal thing Friday. Do you think you can get me out by lunch? And again, he has never come to me and said anything about his personal life. And I really took this seriously. He came to me and go to the first AD. And you know, it's tough. He's in a lot of scenes. To shoot him out by lunch isn't easy. So I went to the first AD and I said, Danny needs to be out by lunch. We need to sit down. We need to figure this out. So Friday rolls around and I walk up to Danny and I say, um, hey, Dan, uh, we worked it out. You can leave by lunch. And he said, oh, thanks, Rich, thanks. And I just said, I hope everything's okay. And he said, why wouldn't everything be okay? And I said, oh, you said you had a personal thing. And he said, yeah, I'm going to Coachella. (laughs) Danny DeVito, I wasn't going to Coachella. I'm like, I got to be at work Monday. The dude's like 70, and he needs to head out because the XX is playing and he needs to hit the road. I, I love the man. I, I hope when I just, I, I, I love him. I hope I have a career that is as fun and adventurous as Danny's. Laverne and Shirley. My dad had a business connection and his business connection knew, I believe his name was Phil Foster on Laverne and Shirley. So when we came out to L.A. to visit some family, we went and had um, lunch at the commissary on the Paramount lot. I'll never forget it. It felt like the coolest thing. I wanted to be on this lot. I never wanted to leave this lot. Phil brought us over. We watched a rehearsal of Laverne and Shirley, and I was like in magic land. I never wanted to leave that studio lot. Julie and Louis Dreyfus. Um, There was an improv group at Northwestern that that was the the thing if you were in the funny crowd to be in that Julia Louis-Dreyfus had been in um, my classmate Seth Myers was in 
um, I did not get into this group. Um, and it, 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 it was heartbreak. I mean, it was, I couldn't believe I wasn't going to get an opportunity to do the thing I wanted to do. And then I made a decision that I was going to find a way to be funny. I was just not going to do it in that group. And that's when I decided to try stand up. And I came back to campus the next year and I was the guy who would open for Jake Johansson when he came on campus for Pam Stone when she came on campus. And because I opened for them, I would call their agents and talk to the assistant and make friends with the assistant. And so by the time I came to LA, that assistant at the Gersh agency was now a junior agent. So by the time I got to LA, I actually had, I was being hip pocketed by someone there. Um, not making that improv group changed my life for the better in ways that I could never fully explain, but I certainly would not have pursued stand-up, which is the gateway to many things that happened in my career. Billy Crystal. There's some people you meet in your life, and there's just a sense that they're like family. I, I can't believe I'm friends with Billy Crystal. I can't believe Billy Crystal likes me. I can't believe he wants to know what I think is funnier in a scene. I still don't know how I got this job because Larry Charles directed all the episodes and then I came in and directed a couple. I read a, I read one of the episodes and there was a scene where Billy and Josh Gad were having an argument on set. And I had been walking around the lot that day and they have a, a house, like the a Gone with the Wind house on the, on the Culver lot. And I just had an idea and I went to Larry Charles and I went to Ben Wexler, the executive pro producers on the show, and I said, can I, can I pitch you an idea of what I'd like to see Billy do? And I pitched them the idea, and they said, you can, you can go pitch that to Billy. He's not going to do it. It's my first day. I walk down to his trailer. I'm, I'm, I knock on his trailer door. And he said, come on in, come on in. I said, Billy, I was looking at the script. There's a scene where you're having an argument with Josh, and you're just on the soundstage. And there's a lot of scenes on the soundstage. What if we do it, and you're doing like a Gone with the Wind sketch? And you're having the argument. And he says, oh, and like I dress up like Rhett Butler in the tux and I just shake my head no. And he looks at me and he says, you want me to put on a dress, don't you? And I said, look, you're Billy Crystal. <laughs> you know it's funniest. I think it'd be pretty funny if you're getting angry. And he just thinks and he says, yeah, if I put on a dress and I got the parasol and I put some makeup on, yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. And it was such a special moment for me that I had pitched my childhood idol something and he thought it was funny um the other thing i'll tell you just in terms of what a what a, the kind of guy billy crystal is is i was on the phone with my mom it was her birthday and i was wishing my mom a happy birthday on uh, it was on set and i said okay mom happy birthday love you and i hung up and he said it's your mom's birthday i said yeah he said call her back I said, okay i called her back i handed him the phone and he sat there and had a conversation with my mom wishing her a happy birthday telling her how much he loved working with me and just was just so kind and um i still we're still in touch i call him when i need advice on something and i i just love him soccer so hoosiers was like the greatest sports movie ever made some people will say rudy the good news is the same director did both of those movies so it's a win no matter what you think but they're one and two and um, I, I saw, I don't know, 15 years ago when I was an actor, this guy was making a movie about like a World Cup soccer team. 
And I thought, I got to get in this movie. Um, so I call my agent and say, hey, the guy who did Hoosiers and Rudy's doing a soccer movie, you got to get me in. She says, let me go check. Let me find out. And this is not like my normal fare. I'm a sitcom actor. And um, she calls back. She says, well, you know, unfortunately, they're only they're going to hire professional soccer players and NCAA soccer players, and they're going to work with them on their acting. They're not going to do the other thing. And I said, well, luckily for us, I played four years of NCAA soccer at Northwestern. Uh, I was an NCAA soccer player. I'm perfect for this. She said, I had no idea. I said, yeah. I should tell you that the last time I played soccer, I was 14 years old. <laughs> so she calls the casting director back and casting director, I didn't know Richie Keene, but this is, this is perfect. They call me back and they say, look, we have a, uh, there's gonna, we have a scrimmage for you on, on Saturday. I go, oh, ha, 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 ha. They said, no, you're going to go scrimmage with the LA Galaxy. So let us know how it goes. It's too, I can't back out. I just completely lied. So now I got to figure out how, I, I go buy new cleats. I got the white socks up to my knees. And I go out for a few days with a buddy of mine. I, le- I try and learn how to kick the ball. I show up. I mean, there are guys flipping the ball over their head. They're, I mean, these are professional soccer players. And I, I can't, I'm standing there going, what a, this is crazy. What am I doing here? But I can't back, I'm like, I can't back out. So they begin the day with a drill and you get in line and you're moving up the line and the the drill is someone from the galaxy kicks the ball to you from very far away. You stop the ball, you dribble up as a guy guards you and you shoot a goal from very far away. All this with the galaxy. And I'm watching guys, you know, the ball gets kicked in them. They use their head to knock it to the ground. They flip the ball over their head while it's in midair. They do that thing sideways where they kick the ball and it goes in the net. And I'm getting closer and closer and I have no plan. And eventually it's like I'm marching to my death. And eventually there I am. I'm number 68. I got a big thing on my chest and they kick the ball. And it's too high to use my head and it's too low to use my foot. And it just crushes me in the gut. And I'm, I'm hunched over in pain from this ball hitting me in the gut. But I'm like, <gasps> I got to pull it together. And I dribble up and I take a shot. I close my eyes and I kick the ball as hard as I can. And I open my eyes. And that ball is in the parking lot. <laughs> and it's not anywhere even close. And they said, thank you, 68. You can go. And, uh, and But the good news is, is my agent never found out that I lied. So I, I, I stood by my story. Caitlin Olson. I just don't understand how Caitlin Olson has not won an Emmy Award. I, they're just so... I'm not saying this because I work on the show. As a student of half-hour television, she's doing something that just... I, it's funny. I, I'm going to go do an episode of The Mick, and I said to her, you're finally going to get nominated for an Emmy. It's for the wrong show, but I'm just happy you're going to finally get nominated for an Emmy. Uh, she's a good friend. I think she's brilliant. I just wish more people saw her doing what she does. Conan O'Brien. In a world of full circle moments for me, you know, Billy Crystal, we talked about his manager was my manager. Um, so Conan, I was his intern, and um, <laughs> it, there's a funny story of, in my life where I was interning for Conan and I couldn't believe I was on a TV set. I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe I was at 30 Rock. And in my 
first or second week of being an intern, I decided to just sneak in and watch a taping. I, I had never seen a taping of a late night talk show. And I went and I was sitting in the first or second row and having the best time and the show ends and I walk out and one of my like supervisors grabbed me and she said, you know, Conan saw you in the audience and he was very upset. He was wondering, why is there an intern watching the show? And I lit up and I said, Conan knows who I am? <laughs> um, he, was, he couldn't have been kinder. And the cool thing is now we're doing a big cast show uh, for Fistfight on Conan. And, um, and I have reconnected with, with him and all of them. And it's, they're, they're very proud that their former intern is directing a movie that is going to promote on their show. First music video. When I realized I needed to continue out working everyone and, and get more tape, one of the few things I figured I could do is just shoot a music video because I could just get some cameras. And um, uh, a friend of mine, my friend Kevin, is a manager in the music business and had a band and had about a thousand bucks and let me shoot that band. And while I was shooting them, one of the heads of Warner Brothers Music came down. This was his pet project, this band. And he loved what I was doing. And he called me in and said, I have another video. It's a real video. This is this got a real budget. Um, and he played me the song. And uh, I came up with this idea. And I said, it's going to be a rave in a hospital. And it's going to be, you know, 100 people dancing. And, and he said can you do this? Can you shoot this? Can it be on the air in a couple weeks? And I said, oh, of course I can do it. And I left Warner Brothers and I called my cinematographer who was a 20-year-old college student. I said, I I'm fucked. I have to run a hospital. I have to get 100 people. Uh, and I put a thing out on my social media. I think it was MySpace at the time. And it was a really beautiful thing because everyone I knew showed up in their pajamas to be in this music video for me because I didn't have the money to pull off what I had pitched. Um, and two weeks later, it was on MTV. Jeff Garland. I love Jeff Garland, and I almost get emotional uh, thinking about him because he, he hates when I say this, but he showed up for me for no good reason. I ran into Jeff when I was trying to put that short film together, and I said, I'm putting a short film together as there any way you'd be in it he hadn't read it he barely knew me we had we had acted in a movie together that uh kind of came and went and uh he said the only reason i won't do it is is if i can't if i can i will and he could and he showed up for me and has been incredibly supportive ever since and the reason i really wanted to go do the goldbergs when they asked me this year to come do a couple episodes was specifically so i could work with Jeff and and thank him for the hundredth time for showing up for me Charlie Day Charlie knows this if he ever has a body in the back of the car he could leave it at my door and no questions asked he'll get taken care of um, uh, he's probably the smartest actor I know um, which is funny for a guy who plays such a dummy on his show he he and I went through this process from beginning to end and the movie is what it is because of him and his partnership and um he will never get credit for the things that he contributed to the movie but i can't wait to 
continue working with Charlie and supporting all the things he wants to do. Ice Cube. I can't believe I'm friends with Ice Cube. If you had told me, I can't believe that I went to Coachella with Ice Cube while he was on stage and while he sang a song with Dr. Dre pointed at me. I had just finished doing a movie with him and I've never felt cooler in my life. Was Danny DeVito standing there? <laughs> DeVito didn't come to this one. Uh, I finally got to Coachella, Barry. <laughs> finally. Um, I don't think Ice Cube would like me saying this, but he is so kind and so smart, so aware of who he is and what he does. And we're going to do something else together. Um, I don't know if it'll be the next thing, but there's a, there's a movie we're going to do together. I, I can't believe I get to hitch my wagon to his star. I feel so grateful. He is such a great partner and collaborator and pushed me to make fist fight and his role in fist fight as unique as it is. Steven Spielberg. So I make this short film about a guy who's obsessed with Steven Spielberg and that his favorite movie is Hook, which even by Spielberg's own admission is at least in his two worst movies ever made. But I love Hook. Okay. So this crazy thing happens where I um, get a call from the casting office at DreamWorks that they're going to, they're looking for someone to play a director and a couple of short films to help Jerry Seinfeld promote his animated movie, The Bee Movie. And I immediately think of Ed Quinn, who's um, in Hooked. He's just like a Michael Bay looking, he's a stud. And I'm like, he should be that guy. And I called them, I said, you should use Ed Quinn. And they said, okay, why don't you come in too? Like throwing me a bone. And I said, I, I'm, not, I'm not right for it. You, you, you don't want me. You should, you should bring in Ed. And I think I even pitched a couple other people. They said, come in, come in. You know, Jerry Seinfeld is my idol. I mean, I don't, I don't exist in this business without that show being a show. And I go in and Ed says to me, let's go in together. I'll be the director. You be the AD. There was no AD in the script. He's like, let's just riff. It'll be fun. And uh, I said, okay. So I go in and I riff and I get a call the next day. Jerry loves you. Uh, they're going to use Eddie Izzard as the director and Chris Rock and Jerry and Steven Spielberg are going to be in the short film and you're going to play the assistant director. I, I said, uh, you're telling me I'm going to spend the day with those people? Yeah. Yeah. Great. So I go down and the entire day, Steven Spielberg is standing 30 feet away and I've been told, leave him alone. Don't talk to him. <coughs> and here I have just finished a short film about a guy who's obsessed with Steven Spielberg and the day's winding down. I've never had an opportunity to talk to him. I just wanted, I just wanted to do what I ultimately did, which was when no one was looking, I just said, Hey Steven, I had no idea exactly what I would say next, but he looked at me and his assistant looked at me like, are you, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> and when I say his assistant, you know, she's not like an assistant assistant. She's making 300 grand a year as the vice president of his life assistant. And how are you talking to Steven? He says, yeah. And I just said, I want to thank you. And he looked at me kind of curiously and he said, thank me for what? And I said, well, I just made a short film. And he said, good for you. And I said, yeah, and it's about you. Well, 
he walks right over to me and now I'm watching everyone kind of turn, but Hey, he's walking towards me. And he said, what do you mean it's about me? I said, and I tell him, what's well, about a guy and he loves your movies and his favorite movies, Hook. And he says, what, Hook? What's his second favorite movie? 1941? You couldn't have picked Raiders? And I tell him about the short and we have a really great, hey, what did you shoot on? We're having a filmmaking conversation. And he says, well, I'd, gosh, I'd love to see it. Do you, do you have a copy? And I said, as a matter of fact, I do. I have a copy right over there. And I gave him... I gave him the DVD, and a few days later, a FedEx arrived, and there was a note from Steven Spielberg, and he said, thank you for including me in your celluloid dream of Hollywood. It means the world. I loved it. I, I know we're going to cross paths again, and I'm sure you can imagine how quickly that got into a frame and hung <laughs> up in my office. It was just the most special thing. And then one day, I got to work with Steven Spielberg and Jerry Seinfeld. It was the perfect way to end my acting career. Wow. Your proudest moment in show business. Completing the first season I directed of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia and feeling like the show that had, had inspired me, you know, they made their own pilot. They inspired me to make my own pilot. And here I have now been hired by the people who inspired me to lead the ship. Finishing that first season where I did, I think, five episodes um, and feeling like I... I brought something special was probably my proudest moment. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level. I think my career is an exercise in pivots. I think I've had so many disappointments. There were pilots I did that didn't go. I think the answer is this. No one would hire me. It was like the scene in Tootsie where Sidney Pollack tells Dustin Hoffman, no one will hire you. Now, not because I didn't have a good reputation or a bad reputation like in that movie. I would go take these meetings and they'd call my agent. they say, we love him. He gets the show. He's passionate. I think we're going to give him an episode. We'll probably give it to our editor. Um, the biggest disappointment was I got a call from my agent and he said, it's not happening. And I said, which one? And he said, all of them. He said, um you're not going to get hired right now. Um, you know, when you get a call at nine o'clock from your agent, it's rarely good news. And he said to me, but I believe in you. I know you're special and we may have, you may have to go shoot something else, but I know we can find a way for you to get a career going. That meant a lot to me. They didn't drop me, but I hung up that phone that night and I was just, I was, floored I just was like it just didn't happen for me and about three weeks later I got it's always sunny in Philadelphia and it's because no one would hire me and because I had Dimitri Martin's show and then it's always sunny in Philadelphia that I got to do the coolest stuff I got to go do shameless I got to go do the comedians I got to go work with Dennis Leary and uh, Mark Marin, and now Kathy Bates on Netflix and I got a movie, you know, if all of those other shows had said, yes, uh, I would have had a much different career, but the disappointment in that moment was pretty heavy. What advice do you have for the young person auditioning for Bye Bye Birdie, <laughs> watching stand up with their friends? And also what advice do you have for the young actor or actress who has to go into rooms like mm -hmm. you did? and sometimes get rejected, sometimes get it. But what do they have to do to get a role 
where you look at a tape or you look at a video or they walk in, you close the door and you say, that's the person we're hiring. The first thing I would say is something that I heard James Earl Jones say uh, when I was a freshman at Michigan, and this is not a knock on anyone or any experience I had there. However, I was in an acting class. He happened to come speak. Darth Vader, there he is, speaking to us. And he said, look to your left and look to your right. These are the people who are going to push you to be great. And I thought, I'm not in the right place. I think the people you surround yourself with are so important. And you want to be around people who are hungry and ambitious and talented. If you're the smartest person in the room, sometimes that's nice, but usually that's not the right situation. I like to be around people, and this goes into how I direct with actors who have their own ideas. I want to be around people who come up with stuff I never thought of. So I would say to people, look at the people you're surrounding yourself with. The people who are kind of kicking around and having beers and talking about what they're going to do, that that's probably not going to go anywhere. I've been around those people. I was around some of those people when I was a comic. Um, you know, um, the other thing I would say is um, as much as you can, and this is going to sound a little airy-fairy or spiritual, there's a big difference between walking into a room and, and having the energy of what do you have for me as opposed to walking into a room and saying, I have a gift for you. Um, whether you're an actor going to an audition, whether you're a director going for a job, if you can go into a room and, and offer something of yours and then leave saying, I gave it to you, I don't expect anything in return, I hope you like it, I think you'll find people respond better than when you come in hoping to please, wanting to get something, um, because at the end of the day, you don't have any control over any of it. Um, so that that's another thing. And I would also just say, there's no right or wrong to anything creative. What's your take? What makes your take special? Why are you making the choices you're making? Point of view. This goes back to stand-up. What is your point of view? I think a lot of directors are good at making comedy don't always have a point of view on that comedy visually or in the writing. It's never going to hurt the comedy. It's only going to make it more special. Rich, you are amazing. I am so happy you came. It means so much to me. I love being here. I'm so grateful. Thanks for supporting me and my project. Okay. As promised, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who purchased the documentary, I killed JFK. It's an amazing story about the only man in history who has admitted to killing JFK. It's an incredible documentary, and you can get it at the website ikilledjfk.com. You can see the trailer, and it's truly incredible. And so I'm going to scroll through now randomly the people who purchased the documentary this week, and one of these people will be a lucky winner, and they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Okay, let's do it. All right, landing on David Courtright from Irving, Texas. Congratulations, David. You are a winner. Also, I figure 
I might as well give away the same thing to somebody who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section as well. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. Okay, landing on Jeff G30, a five-star review on August 19, 2014, titled Very Informative. The review reads, I'm not in the business at all, but it is a very interesting look at show business and other areas. Thank you, Jeff G30. Congratulations. You are a winner. And don't forget, AquaTrue, the first countertop water purifying system. It's incredible. Go to industrystandardwater.com. It'll take you to the AquaTrue site. You can read about it. And you punch in the code 100 and you can save $100. It's incredible. I have one best tasting water ever. All right, as always, this is Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money, drive that fancy car. All the people love you, cause you're going far. Life is for the dreamers, they have all to gain. It's never quite over, so it all feels the same. You pick your own poison, dig your own grave. Down in the valley, a fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.